Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. Today we have with us Jeffrey Tucker, the Editorial Director of the American Institute for Economic Research. Jeffrey writes on economics, technology, social philosophy, and culture, and has been a very active voice since the start of the pandemic. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to March, early March. You started writing about this like maybe the second week of March, if I, if I go back to, to, to the website here and found, found a few pieces. How, how are you thinking about what, what was in your mind in the beginning of March, maybe late February, as the news from China and Italy started arriving and, and, and um, you start seeing what our governments were starting to think about? Uh, my first article on the topic was actually January 27th because um, I had seen the news out of China and and I knew that the U.S. government had quarantine powers. And uh, and I had already been through the uh, Center for Disease Control's website about the vastness of the quarantine power. And it was very interesting to me because I don't think that most Americans had any clue that, that such a power existed, that they had the ability to just go into an entire neighborhood and round everybody up or pull you out of your home or um, push you into a, a camp. Um, and so I was explaining, explaining this, and, I, and what I argued was that it was, there was, it was sh- shouldn't use the quarantine power because people who are sick don't want to don't, don't be out and about. They don't want to get other people sick, and other people don't want to get sick from them. So what my argument was that we had society contains within itself a mechanism to manage uh, diseases without the kind of enormously coercive and disruptive thing we call the quarantine power. Now, that was interesting article because at that time, nobody was really talking about COVID. You know, we have a tendency with disease to think it's always over there, but it can't ever be here. And there's, And that's... Wherever you are, you always think the disease is somewhere other than where you are. Remember, that's sort of uh, it's been true since the ancient world. So, in those days, people didn't, weren't thinking about COVID even coming here. But um, I was pretty sure it was going to because you know we live in a globalized economy, and viruses don't respect borders. It's utterly ridiculous. And we know now, in retrospect, that COVID had already been here, probably is in, already in December. But Americans wouldn't believe it. Anyway, I got really heavily criticized for that article because people said it was alarmist. They said, look, look, this is ridiculous. Um, the idea that uh, the Center for Disease Control is going to work with FEMA and the State Department to round people up who are sick. What could possibly be the point of that? That will never happen in this country. And uh, I had several radio interviews on it, and they were, they were kind of saying, well, this is so extreme, it's ridiculous. Um, but, you know, what was interesting is that uh, um, I, I hadn't thought about the subject at all between then and, and about February 28th, and that was when the New York Times podcast, which I listened to, I used to listen to very carefully, to find out sort of what was going on, you know, what's, what's in the air, what's the coming thing. The New York Times always gets its way in a strange way, and it's a leading... Um, journalistic venue in, in the United States. And eventually every other venue follows them, whether it's the Boston Globe or the uh, Los Angeles Times or whatever it may be, Chicago Sun-Times. They all follow the New York Times. And on February 28th, they had an interview with a, a, a virus reporter there named uh, Daniel McNeil. And, um, and the New York Times has always been kind of a voice for sanity and sobriety and calm and always a little center-left, you know. But always very much in favor of 
not too much disruption, keeping keeping the peace. That's that seems to be their line. Well, on February twenty eighth, I had an interview with McNeil, who told the listeners, the three million listeners of this daily podcast, that COVID nineteen will kill eight point two five million people in the United States unless we lock down the economy. So at that moment, I thought, that is weird. And he added, six of your friends will die from COVID-19. And I thought, this is, this is not normal. This is strange. And of course, I didn't believe a word of it. But, but, <laughs> but what struck me as odd was the fact that they were actually going saying this is completely unlike the New York Times to do this. I mean, to, to, to really fuel a kind of media panic. So I really smelled a rat from then on. And I really started directing our editorial attention to trying to dial back the, the panic and that sort of thing. And uh, I'm not sure. You may be right that my next article was maybe the first week of March or something like that. I'm not entirely sure. But we started running editorials of, about it to examine the demographics, to uh, report on what you know, serious epidemiologists were saying, contrary opinions. John Iodinus from Stanford University was, was already writing in Stat News saying this is what, what we're considering here is, is, is a catastrophe. So we really did throw ourselves into, um, as best we could, providing some balance to what was, what was, what emerged between February 28th and something like March 15th was a new kind of media consensus. And you could see it happening in real time because even, even the first week of March, center-left journals of opinion in this country were calling for calm. Psychology Today says your doctor's not worried about COVID. You shouldn't be either. Slate Magazine said it's not that deadly. It's actually a mild, uh, mild uh, flu-like thing, a flu, flu-like uh, cold. And meanwhile, <laughs> the, the right, right wing in this country I mean, some some right wingers in this country were 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 being all apocalyptic about it. They were the ones that were saying they were saying like what the New York Times is saying: "We're going to die. It's a good thing you're a prepper. You better go out and buy all your groceries and and toilet paper now and that sort of thing." I mean, Tucker Carlson. These guys were in those days far more alarmist about this than say Psychology Today or Slate or the Washington Post. So what we saw in those first two weeks of March was a like a weird bending of, of, of the national conversation that was leaning more and more towards lockdown. The drumbeat just grew and grew and grew. Um, and where, where do you think that came from? Do you think that that had a lot to do with the epidemiologist models that came out? I mean, I, I, a lot of the people that I talked to, I think, put a lot of uh, focus on the, the Imperial College model being no question. in everybody's mind. And, and, and the, the reverse, of course, of the UK, yeah. I think, turned a lot of minds around here as well. It was very interesting because there, there are a number of epidemiological establishments around the country. There's Johns, Johns Hopkins, there's Stanford, there's Oxford University, uh, Oxford University and there's um, the Imperial College. The Imperial College... Uh, prediction of 2.2 million deaths in America, unless we socially distance, flatten the curve, and all this stuff, became the dominant uh, theme. Uh, they they somehow won out. I don't think that was an accident. But they won out in getting the press attention, and uh, that's what flipped things. I think that might have been, if I'm remembering correctly, March 14th when that uh, when the news of that of that model came out. And but already, 
already on March 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, you could see things changing. There was a, a drumbeat in the air uh, for lockdowns, and I could feel it. I was on a train to New York. Ready, I had Broadway tickets that weekend, uh, going to a, a Blue Note concert the next night, and so on. I was headed into New York for a television interview, and I got that interview done. I hopped right back on the train and got back back home. And I was glad to be safe because I, I had a sense that they were going to shut down Amtrak because it was getting really intense out there. So it was a media fueling panic. The public was genuinely scared because people didn't know what to do or what, this, what was really happening. Um, what I... So anyway, that so all my researchers got busy and started examining things like why do we have a problem with hospital scaling or do we have a problem with hospital scaling? Uh, what was the basis of the school closings that happened, you know, March 15th, something like that, 16th? Uh, why, do, why do we think that, that COVID uh, magically appears when, when, when 10 people stand together or, or it spreads in, in, in theaters? Uh, or what, why do we think, why did we adopt a cootie theory of viruses? I mean, why, why do we think that if you run away from the virus, that the virus will get bored and go home? That, that, that was the weirdest like the level of public ignorance about about virus basics that my mother always knew was amazing. The idea of flattening the curve was never to avoid the virus. It was to slow the pain so the hospitals should scale. But once it became clear that there wasn't a scaling problem with hospitals, then there was a second rationale that was introduced, which was you should just stay away from the virus, which is not true. It turns out lethality under the age of 65 is, 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 is it barely even registers. It's like 0.002. It's not even a thing. And, for, you know, more than half the cases are asymptomatic. I can go through all this. You know this. But so we started trying to pump out information to be uh, a contrary uh, point of view. And one of the ways I began to do this was to look back at other really serious epidemics in the 20th century and examine how society responded. Mm -hmm. And so I started with 68, 69 Hong Kong flu. I wrote all about that and pointed out that the New York Times at that time was saying, everybody calm down. So it's, you know, it, it, we can get, we can get, get, we can get immunities to this. It's not a problem. You can take vaccine, but there weren't, not many people did. Um, so but, well, let's, let's talk about that, that one. So, so what were the, the, the sort of uh, uh, magnitude of that, the 1968 pandemic? Um, there were, there were 100,000 100, people died from it. And it was, it was not so focused demographically as, as COVID-19. Uh, there were young people, a lot of young people died from it. So it was, it was kind of a scary thing, but it's like all viruses. You know, you get the virus, you get the immunity. So right. that's the way it worked. Um, so I wrote this. I wrote this article. It was pretty, and, and by the way, the the lifespan of the average American that day was those days were ten years shorter than it is now. So sixty eight. So and also the population was a lot uh, smaller. I can't remember the exact number. So in a sense, when, if you scaled uh, that that death, hundred thousand deaths up to uh, adjusted it for the population and for the age, um, it was a much more serious serious pandemic than what we're going through right now. So, um, so I put that article out. I noticed right before I went to print that that was the same year that Woodstock occurred. And I thought that was really interesting that Woodstock occurred in the middle of a pandemic, which is what I called the article. Um, that article went wild because it, it confused people. 
It's like, wait, a serious pandemic, and there was no newspaper reports about it. There was just a little talk, like, be careful kind of stuff. But otherwise, there were rock concerts and civil rights protests, and everybody just went along their normal lives. My, my point was just simply to say society can manage a disease better than than, than lockdowns and governments and quarantines. That was, that was my pain. So then I started going back in time. I went to 57, 58 with, uh, with that flu, which was, I think, called the Asian flu. And 116,000 Americans died uh, with a much, again, I think we were only 200 million people at the time. And so that was a very serious pandemic. And once again, the New York Times said, everybody calm down. Medical professionals will handle this. It's going to be okay. And so nobody paid any attention. There's very little uh, attention paid to it uh, at all. And then I went back further to 1949 to 1951's polio scare, which with that, you talk about is terrible. You know, a, a disease. One, one quick point about the 57-58 is that, that that flu was particularly vicious on expecting mothers. So can you imagine if COVID particularly targeted pregnant women, you know, how much panic there would be around today? So, so that was a vicious disease, far less cruel than COVID-19. And then the polio pandemic, you know, which, which, which cripples young girls from the age of like 7 to 11. I mean, look, at the most wicked thing you can imagine. There were little hot spots where they shut swimming pools and things like that. But in all three of these pandemics, there were, there were oh, in, in 1957, there were some schools that closed as they approached the Christmas break because too many people were absent. <laughs> but there were no mandatory school closing to say nothing of cancellation of sports, you know, the end of international travel would have been unthinkable. Nothing was done. Um, and, the, and the polio epidemic, in, you know, in particular was, was, was horrible. So anyway, I began to really get curious about like, why did previous generations have a different attitude towards viruses? And it, it really comes about in, in the post-1918 flu pandemic era, where there were some closings in San Francisco and Chicago and a few other places, and scientists later really regretted that. They thought that was a wild overreaction. And there, there became a consensus within, the, within um, uh, virology and epidemiology and, and immunologists and things that, that, that the old way of running away from a virus was not a workable way to manage virus, you know? And my mother knew this, and they taught a whole generation after World War II about natural immunities and uh, vaccines and, and how this is, for millions of years, humanity, 200,000 years, whatever you want to call it, humanity has coexisted with viruses, and we need to learn rational ways of dealing with it. And we did that in the 20th century. So then the question became, in my mind, what happened and what went wrong? Uh, it, where was the turning point? where we went from being smart to being stupid. And as far as I could tell, that turning point came in 2006. And that's where I found my most in interesting information. And that was, uh, uh, what, what was that, 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 that turning point exactly? Uh, George Bush, who had, you remember, had invaded Iraq after 9-11. Um, and that didn't go so well. And he began to get very concerned about bioterrorism. Like he thought that some bad guys were going to unleash chemical warfare in the United States and, and wanted to know what to do about it. He read a book on the 1918 
flu pandemic, or he claims to have read the book. He probably just read the, the book Flaps. But, uh, <laughs> but he sent out an order to the State Department of the Veterans Administration, to the CDC and FEMA, that he wanted all kinds of input for a national plan to deal with bioterrorism and pan pandemic conditions. And, um, and so there emerged in those days two broad camps. One was the doctors who had old-fashioned medical advice. You get the immunity, we build up herd immunity, and it goes away. Don't disrupt society. But there was another camp that developed, and really, it started with a guy named Robert Glass, who was working out of a government laboratory in Albuquerque, New Mexico, never knew a first thing about viruses, never studied them. He was a, a, a physicist and a computer modeler. And he was inspired by his 14-year-old daughter, Laura Glass, I guess her name, Laura Glass. And she was doing a high school science project in which she was speculating about how you prevent the spread of a disease among high school students and came up with this idea of social distancing and, and showed her father. Was the term coming from, 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 from her? There was a whole new language apparatus that was invented around this time. I don't know if, if, right. if, if I, th I don't think it's, I think it was Sarah Glass, not Laura. Um, but actually that term was used in that paper that they came out in 2006. So he began to model this. It was like what he called his Eureka moment. And so he put together all his fancy 3D moving PowerPoint presentations. And, and that paper is the first one that I know of that used the term social distancing. And then what they started later, later started calling targeted, uh, targeted layered containment or TLC. That's a heck of a thing. And, and the curve flattening analytics were the first time that appeared in that, in that paper and so on. Um, it was signed by Robert Sarah this academic paper, and one other author who seems to have vanished from the planet. By the way, Sarah herself went on to get a master's in divinity, has not talked to the press ever since. <laughs> She's now 29 years old and nobody can get a hold of it, so it's pretty interesting. Um, but there, So there began to be this whole other language apparatus, and they began to recruit um, other computer scientists, and this is where Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation come into it, right? So there began to be like these SimCity-style modelers who, who actually don't know anything about viruses, and Bill Gates himself doesn't know anything about viruses. I've watched several of his speeches on the topic. He's clearly ignorant. And, um, and so when they presented at the White House, and I talked to several people who were there at the time. Um, oh, let me just back up slightly. So this paper <coughs> came under incredible assault, from the entire epidemiological establishment and all the, all the doctors. The leading critic is a man named Donald Henderson, and he is the guy who crushed the uh, smallpox. He traveled all over the world and was basically responsible for the eradication of smallpox. And so he wrote a brilliant response to this paper saying, this is crazy, social distancing is silly, uh, you're not going to do anything to make the virus go away just by avoiding it. You should never shut the schools. <clears throat> if anything, you want 
the virus is spread among the schools. That's a tremendously disruptive. You'll ruin people's lives. And plus, if you shut schools, you've got to shut the malls and theaters and then also places of work. Because what are you going to do with the kids? And suddenly they'll all be stuck at home. They're probably going to subject to all kinds of abuse. We're going to cause mass unemployment and people are going to get hungry. And you're going to see a rise in suicides. And uh, <laughs> everything everything he wrote in that paper became true. So, he, And he said, you know, the, the disrupt, no point in disrupting travel by the time by the time you see the signs of the virus. The virus is already here so shutting down travel doesn't do any good there's a brilliant response and and full of passion and fire and absolutely brilliant he by the way died in 2016 which is just incredible um but but so i talked to one of the so so basically all these people came to a white house meeting it was kind of a big deal for them because they had never really been to the white house you got the president of the united states you know futzing over them and um so the doctors made their presentations you know Henderson and his and his cap, and he's like, well, when the virus comes, you know, you don't really know what it's going to be. It could be a different strain of H1N1. It could be another strain. They all have demographic, uh, different, different levels of severity. It could be severe. It could be mild. You don't really know if it's severe or mild until after the fact. All you can really do is, uh, you know, test and watch and and uh, uh, mitigate when people get sick. Make sure they get get to the doctor and. Um, if they, if you know, if it's if there's a lot of asymptomatic cases, you don't worry about that, and and the virus burns itself out through herd immunity. Okay, so it's a fairly boring presentation. Bush was unimpressed. Next thing you know, the computer scientists show up with their PowerPoint presentation, the 3D moving models, and a plan for basically a police state totalitarian takeover of society where. You know, everybody's forced to stand six feet apart and people live in refrigerator boxes for three, three months and so on. I mean, it's like just cockamamie crazy stuff, apocalyptic crazy. But the Bush administration was very impressed. Now, these guys are all schooled at the Kennedy School of Government, but they don't know anything about viruses either, right? And, and so they're just listening to presentations of various size and they're going for the, for the people that had the splashiest, most apocalyptic vision and the biggest central plan. So, after those three days of presentations, uh, the Bush administration ordered the CDC to pound out a plan in consultation with all of these guys, these computer modeling guys. One of the top converts to this was a a doctor who's still at the Veterans Administration named um, Carter Meacher. And uh, he became a convert to uh, to the glass vision himself. And... So over the over the and CDC in 2007 put out their first document, full of all these targeted layered uh, containment strategies, curve, curve flattening, social distancing, a kind of theory, which was a complete reversal of everything that CDC had ever said about viruses. It was a, it wasn't as radical as the 2006 document from the Glasses and Company, but it basically accepted the the model of uh, run away and stay away from people, stay inside and hide. Um, that was the what CDC. So it was a huge coup, uh, but the computer scientists against the epidemiolo- uh, the real doctors and epidemiologists and medical professionals. Well, okay, now you have a fourteen-year gap, right? Well, the next time they could have implemented that was two thousand nine. But hey, there was a financial crisis. Um, I forget what that was called. The, the avian flu or whatever. No, that was the swine flu. Swine flu. H1N1, by the way, same, same, same damn thing that killed millions and millions of people in uh, 1918. So of all times, the panic would have been 2009, but they didn't. Nobody cared. And I guess about 
I don't know, 20,000 people died, somebody 30,000, I don't know what, how many people died. It wasn't that big a deal. But you could see that it seemed like it could have been a big deal, but nobody did anything because it was a financial crisis, a new president, Obama wasn't interested in this crazy Bush theory of uh, apocalypse. So nothing happened. So then we have to fast forward another, another 11 years until uh, this virus comes along. Um, and in the meantime, Bill Gates, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation had shoveled hundreds of millions of dollars out to epidemiological departments all over the world. Not all of them, but especially the Imperial College people. So they gradually began to kind of replace the old doctors and new stuff with newfangled fancy pants, computer scientists, you know, like, like Neil Ferguson, who's, who's a physicist, never been trained in, in, uh, in uh, medicine at all. Physicists taking over epidemiological departments. People never cured a single disease, never saw a single patient. They're just the people who made Pac-Man in SimCity, you know, are now taking over virus. So, so when this thing came along, they started an email chain uh, sometime in, yeah, late, late January, and started whipping up a frenzy and getting people really scared. Medical professionals, uh, all these people were on the email chains, and uh, it got crazier and crazier and crazier. And I don't know if you've, you've ever been a part of an email chain. Like, you probably have been on one of these email lists. There's always, like, one or two people who dominate the list, and everybody else has to kind of go along with them because they're in charge of the list. Well, Carter Meacher was the leading voice there, and he just began to... Stay up late tonight, skip nights of sleep, he's posting you know, 20 messages a day and so on. Finally, on March 12th, he delivered his manifesto, citing the glasses, calling for social distancing and targeted layer containment, and most especially shutting down schools all over the country. And um, his words were, let's pull the trigger now. That was March 12th. And that, as far as I can tell, was the memo that, that turned it over the other direction. He got somebody, so many people whipped up in a frenzy that they just flipped out. And then I guess it was two days later that um, Neil Ferguson came out with his, his paper and the Trump administration caved, blocked international travel, started weighing in on behalf of uh, uh, shutdowns and, and so on. And, and the world fell apart and the rest is history. But then, but then what amazes me is that, is that fortunately we live in a country that has, that has a, a, a federalist system where the president didn't have the power to go and shut down the entire country. Right. And yet, of course, he has a lot of influence in the way he presents things and what, how the CDC is putting forward information and so on. But, but uh, uh, it's, it's really amazing to me that 50 states, not 50, I think 49 states uh, put down, stay in shelter in place orders. Mm-hmm. closing out our businesses and, and, you know, getting 49 people to do the same thing is not, it's not easy. 49 government, although maybe, maybe, you know, you can, ha- you can say that it's not hard if you, if you, if you provided them with totalitarian powers, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think there were a number, there was a number of things that had to go into this. There was the media panic, uh, media p- pushing panic. There wasn't a political element to this. I think there was a, you know, there's, there was a sense that, there was a, this is a great way to get Trump. I don't think you can deny that that was a real f- a factor here. Uh, you had a real desire on the part of, of, of public health professionals now to uh, try out the new scheme, you know, the new, it was a kind of a social experiment. So they were very ready for this and really wanted to, to give it a go. And it wasn't supposed to last three months, but um, they were ready to try it for like two weeks. And then once the powers kind of got into, into play and, and, and the, the, the weird nightmare became our weird reality, then it's just been hard to back off of it. 
and thank God for like um, South Dakota, right? They never they never did anything, and their death rates are are you know uh, it's actually the, the lockdowns. As far as you know, anybody can tell, the lockdowns made no difference either way. I mean, it probably ended up. Uh, killing more people just once you consider, you know, misdiagnostics and, and hospitals and, and suicides and drug overdoses and domestic abuse and all the rest of it. Probably more people died in, from the lockdown than from COVID. But a disease doesn't care about, about your weird central plan. It just doesn't. Viruses, viruses have outsmarted, you know, uh, every governor in this, in this uh, country and every president around the world. And there were some nations that didn't do it. South Korea did some contact uh, tracing but, uh, and some testing, but they didn't shut down. Japan didn't shut down. Taiwan didn't shut down. So they, and Sweden. Yeah. Sweden. Right, Sweden. And again, I think that, that that's what, what, what people seem to fail to, to acknowledge is that they like to focus on, oh, the death rate in Sweden is high. It's like, well, the death rate is going to be what it is. And the question, the only question we're trying to avoid before was the question of flattening the curve, of, of not, not exceeding possible capacity. And that's proved, right, that, that you can have an open society and not go to uh, an explosion of, 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 of cases to, to deal with. But Yeah, it seems incontrovertible to me that, that all the policies over the last three months have completely failed, not to mention you know, disregarding of human rights and, and shutting down more than 100,000 small businesses. I mean, it's just been, it's been unbelievable catastrophe. And what's weird to me now is that you don't see a lot of voices out there. Uh, well, you see basically none of the uh, governors, not even those who forced COVID patients into nursing homes. Nursing homes, long-term care facilities account for about 40% of the deaths from COVID. And a lot of them, that was completely unnecessary because the lockdowns distracted us from the real problem. What we should have done is shut the nursing homes down to protect it from the virus from outside. But some people you don't want to get the virus and that's the people you don't want to get the virus are the people who are vulnerable to, uh, fatally uh, vulnerable to this thing. And we should have focused on that. Instead, we forced COVID patients into the nursing homes as they did in New York and even prevented nursing homes from testing people as they came in. It's unbelievable. So that was, that was a, just an amazing catastrophe. But despite this astonishing uh, three months we've lived through, you still don't see any apologies. I mean, like, I don't think that there's been a single governor or mayor in this country to come out and say, you know, that was crazy. Uh, that I think was a, Cuomo, Cuomo has shown some some signs a couple of times of like, yeah, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't have done it. This thing would have done what it did anyway, and 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 uh, he he feels uncomfortable with it. I think he feels a little, a little uncomfortable with it. Well, it's funny because he's maintaining the lockdown more than uh, more than any other state. I mean, you know. state, that's right, that's right. But, but go, going back going back to March, I think one thing that 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 I, I you know you have this this group of people with this idea of okay, the lockdowns is going to be the way to deal with this. And, and, you know, you and I live, live in the world where talking a lot to economists, for example, and, and you know, trade-off evaluation is in, the, is in the, the core of everything we do, right? Well, here's a policy. There's some good, there's some bad, and let's try to evaluate that and think about the different, different uh, uh, values of, the, of those trade-offs and then make a decision. Make a decision based on whatever the utility function of the decision maker is. And it strikes me that there was absolutely none of that taking place at that point in time. I think you can point to... Uh, one paper early on by 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 somebody at Chicago, uh, Michael Grant, Greenstone, I think, that said something like using a value of like five or six million dollars per life, and then if you assume that you know the the that what the epidemiologists are telling you that if you don't do anything, two point two million people are going to die, and if you lock down, 
I don't know, 100,000 people are going to die, then, you know, you multiply 2.1 million times 6 million, then you get a pretty big number. And you might say, well, it's worth shutting down the economy. Uh, but but there was just not enough of that kind of discussion. There was not enough of legislation discussion on this, as opposed to uh, uh, just giving emergency powers and 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 a number of unintended things, right? Things that you, you already mentioned, things about about uh, uh, child child abuse or, or or mental health issues, et cetera, et cetera. None of that was was considered in in, in the calculation. That's right. And then you wrote a lot about individual liberties. Uh, that's something that that was just not. I, don't, I think you were, you were one of the few voices that I saw consistently making that point. That mm. Just you know, this is a house arrest. We yeah. have a bill of rights. We have a constitution that you know it, it, there's takings that are taking place here. Shutting down a business right. saying you cannot operate is equivalent to takings, right? Um, you know where 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 are our friends that defend our liberties? Where are the ACLU? Where are um, why do they all? Yeah. I don't know. It's a little confusing. Um, I I. Never in my wildest dreams imagined that anything like this would happen. And the reason is that I thought we were too smart to do something like this. Um, as I was thinking about this more and more, though, um, I, I've been thinking that maybe Hayek shed some, uh, Friedrich Hayek shed some light on this. So what happens in the midst of peace and prosperity, where everything's functioning really well, and we have access to food and travel and theaters and sports and life's going on as normal, is that we, we gain an illusory sense that people are really intelligent, but what's actually, you know, and smart, and that social media is making us smart, or that we've got access to information, you know, and that we're somehow causing society to function really well, and so therefore nothing bad can happen. But what's actually happening is a little more closer to what Hayek describes. Hayek describes... Uh, social processes as themselves really intelligent, uh, not constructed by any smart person, but rather the intelligences of millions and billions of people are in, embedded in um, institutions like prices and interest rates and social norms and knowledge that we have about supply chains. And this knowledge is extremely decentralized, but there's certain kinds of things that are embedded in the market process or in, in social norms and that sort of thing that accumulate this knowledge and put it together in a way that makes life function really well. But that doesn't mean we are smart as individuals. We might all be unbelievably stupid. Uh, it, we just create, we have an illusion that we're unusually smart because we're so prosperous and peaceful and life works. So what happened with a lockdown is once, once you, you, put a, you take a sledgehammer and you smash all those institutions and you crush the price system and you, and you, and you, you bludgeon supply chains and you shut down people's businesses and make it impossible for their stores to function and for, for people to go out to restaurants or whatever. And you do this across the board and you do it in three days. What, you, what you've done is you've taken the in intelligence of society and, and put it through a meat grinder, and all you're really left with is what you've always had all along, which just is a bunch of extremely stupid people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we've been exposed to over the last three months. We found out how unbearably... The nature of our success is our social interactions. And yeah. 
and, and our system. And then when you break that, and then our success goes away, right? Our, yeah, yeah. And all you're left with is a bunch of, of fearful people who forget about things like human liberty uh, or the Constitution or uh, virus theory. You know, just like every kind of level of, of, of appalling ignorance that you could ever expect from humanity, we've all experienced over the last three months. This is one of the reasons people are so unhappy. Uh, you know, all the surveys show that people have never been unhappy. People haven't been this unhappy since like World War One or something like that. And, and the reason is that we've all been exposed to this shocking reality that we're not very smart. <laughs> that we do really stupid things all the time. That our, the intelligence that we want is embedded in social institutions. It's out there. It's institutionalized. But it's not, it's not any one particular person's uh, smartness. So we put a bunch of 50 central planners in charge, 49 central planners in charge, and sure enough, the whole world just you know, falls apart. So I think, I think the experience of the last three months has really verified uh, a very profound insight that, that Hayek had. And, and the, high, the, the knowledge problem is something that I was, I was not writing necessarily about in the beginning, but it's always very worried when people start using the terms essential, non-essential. Uh, uh, as, if, as if a central planner is able to know what's essential, non-essential, or even, you know, uh, we like to tell stories like the iPencil, right? Our students watch that video and nobody knows how to make one pencil. So what is essential to make the pencil? We don't know. Uh, so to deem this thing essential, this activity essential, not understanding how all the supply chain that goes behind it and makes that thing possible works. Uh, it's just, I, I actually, I actually am shocked and, and that, that we did not see disruptions in supply of goods that were severely worse than what we saw. Uh, the, the, the market really did save us. The market really the market, did save us. The market and the big businesses. I think if anybody out there is complaining about big businesses days, and like, thank God for big businesses. They okay. were the grocery stores, the Walmarts, and they're just phenomenal. They're amazing. What they did was miraculous. That right. allows us to continue, you know, for the most part with our, with, with our lives, right? So, so, so right. Um, but that disdain, I think, for, for, for this emergent order that exists, is something that, that a lot of politicians, a lot of, a lot of folks these days have, and it's, it's unfortunate they don't take the message from Hayek to heart. Well, I think, I think, if anything, this should drive us to read more seriously about Hayek. And, you know, in the end, I think this experience uh, is going to, well, it's going to be defining for a whole generation of people. And it's going to make us really curious about things that we've never really been curious about uh, before. The history of disease, um, uh, how so social processes work, you know, what, what thinkers are out there that explain the failure of central planning, because it has been tried and it has failed. Um, you know, what is it we can rely on in the case of, of emergencies or if it's a genuine pandemic, you know, what should we do next time? We're going to learn a lot from this experience. And I hope one of the lessons we're going to learn is to never, never lock down, never take that sledgehammer to social processes ever again. And that Donald Henderson is right. The most important thing you can do in the middle of a, a pandemic is keep society functioning. That's the only way. So let's talk about, about that because we're, we're in the how, now in a situation where Lots of governors are opening up. I mean, for the most part, we are uh, back to normality in, in as, as far as, I mean, as much as possible. But, uh, um, at least here in Texas, things are uh, somewhat normal. Uh, but, but fair enough, uh, soon, uh, cases are coming back in some places. And, and again, as expected, as anybody that, that have any idea about, about the progression of disease, we cannot wish this thing away, right? It's around us. It's going to be around us for a while. Um, and, and I feel that the movement for, for the pro-lockdown discussion is coming back. Like, well, I'll see, you open it up too early, now it's going to come back. And say, this is, here this we go is again. A, 
It's so crazy because the whole idea with the lockdown was not really to get rid of the virus. It was to slow its spread. Not that it, it's not going to do anything uh, about uh, the, on net the number of people who are going to get infected or die from this. The idea was to somehow control the pace at which it, it, it which I'm, by the way, I'm not convinced that that, that that happened, but let's say it did work. Well, all you're doing then is kicking the can down the road. So you would expect then infections and deaths to rise after the emancipation, which I don't think is really happening. I mean, look, if you look at hospitals, hospitalizations nationwide, they're, they're really, really down. They're up in Texas. But that, part of the reason for that is that Texas has some pretty wicked laws about getting rid of uh, elective surgeries. And, and the hospitals in Texas have basically emptied out for three months. I mean, they're, they're furloughing workers all over the place. So now that uh, things are loosening up a little bit, you're a little more inclined to go to the hospital than you used to be. You know, you're more inclined to call your doctor, whereas before you were afraid. You didn't know what would happen if, if you got COVID positive. They're going to they're gonna tra- trace, trace all your friends and neighbors and harass them. You know, it was a pretty scary time. So I think that's one of the reasons for the increase of hospitalizations in, in Texas. But it's also possible that, you know. No, it's possible that there's an uptick, right? Of course. Yeah. And, and it was I got so to tell you, though, privately, two epidemiologists associated with, a, with a, one of the smartest institutions in this country have told me privately that this thing peaked in April and it's gone now. So they won't say this publicly, but they've told me that privately. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I, I, I can only hope. Um, <laughs> I would agree with you that, that I would hope that, that the lockdown vernacular is going to be gone, but, but I think I'm afraid that we're going to find ourselves in discussions, political discussions that, again, would, would not learn from what, what we've done here uh, so far. And again, I think the cataloging of the, the cost that we face was just gigantic and the benefits are questionable. So why even consider that, that sledge, the sledgehammer? Well, here's a, I'll tell you a funny story, actually, about uh, the, the kinds of costs that we faced. Um, it was about a month ago I started, because I had, I had at some point in my life, I had a uh, what do you call a root canal in my left, left molar over here. And I started feeling a little bit something in my right molar. I thought, oh, crap, I need, to get a, I, got a, I need to get a root canal. So I'm here in Massachusetts, but I don't really have a dentist here. Uh, so I started calling around. They're like, well, we're closed. And they said, we're only open for emergencies. And I said, well, wouldn't a root canal qualify? <laughs> they said, and, and they said, well, maybe, but you have to be a patient. Uh, you have to have a pre-existing patient. You have to have a relationship already. And I said, oh, this is terrible. So I called my mother who lives in, in Texas. And I said, hey, mom, I usually come to the dentist when I come visit you. Um, can, you can you just give a quick call to, your, uh, to the dentist there and tell him that I may have a root canal and I may have to take a flight down and have to get that? She said, okay. So she called him up and they said, well, it's true he is a patient here. However, we have a rule that if you arrive in Texas from another state, you have to be in quarantine for two weeks before you can see us. So I said, so mom, what you're telling me is that I need to, I mean, if, if this, if this is bad, it'll she get made bad. that up. She made that up. She wanted me to stay for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but I, it was going to get bad in three days if it was going to get bad. And so I just said, mom, this is terrible. It's like, I, we, we don't have dentistry in this country. Like, at least for me, we got rid of dentistry. And so my only hope is that I'm wrong. But it turned out I was wrong. I got better. And it wasn't a problem. So, but thank God for that. But I, it was so terrifying there for uh, a couple of days to think that if I, I, I desperately needed a root canal, I could not get one because of the lockdown. So it's like unbelievable. So little things like that quarantine rule, 
you know, that's a design. I couldn't have taken two weeks off work here. It's just utterly insane. So this is the kind of thing. And one of the things I've done routinely throughout this crisis is I write my Twitter uh, followers and ask them, look, I'm writing an article on the psychological toll. Tell me about it. And you know, I get flooded with these terrible emails of sad, sad stories. Well, it's a shocking. And everybody's experiences are different. And then another one I wrote, I asked people to tell me about um, misdiagnostics or uh, missed surgeries or missed uh, uh, um, things that re- the things that they would plan to go to the hospital for. And I got, again, a whole flurry of terrible stories of, of uh, a woman feels a lump in her breast, you know, she can't get it uh, checked out. Uh, somebody's, there are people missing their cancer, um, their chemo treatments and stuff, because those are considered elective and so on. I mean, it's like, it's, once you put it all together and you start chronically in all these catastrophes, I mean, like 41% of the business failures in this, uh, among among African American owned businesses, forty one percent are now out of business yeah. in, in the United States because of because of lockdowns. Yeah, no, that, that's one thing that is very, I think, incompatible with with uh, uh, a lot of the things, the social movements that we have in the country right now. We have had a, this enormous focus on on inequality in the past ten years. The, the, the word inequality became a central part of our discussion in politics and and, and, and policy. And yet we decided to go and do something that is obviously the worst possible thing for inequality. That's the jobs that you can maintain, you know, our jobs, we can work from home and you know, our kids are going to be okay. And, and in meanwhile, the most vulnerable, the poor part of society is the one suffering the most of this. They're losing their jobs. They're the business going closed. They're the kids that are going to be uh, suffering more. They're the ones going to be more affected by, by the disruption in healthcare. It's just unbelievable. Um, it's it's a shock, and I don't know. You know, it's very interesting too. Like I was reflecting on this today, even reading New York Times and some of the mainstream press, they don't want to talk about the lockdowns. They 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 look at all the disaster that's happened over the last three months, and they're inevitably blaming the virus. They always do this, and they don't want to talk about what what actually happened. It's very strange how it's become like a almost like. A taboo, but that can't possibly last. I mean, it's ridiculous. I think we're going to look back at this in five, ten years and just be in utter shock how we could have taken the, the a, a peaceful, prosperous nation in February um, with a roaring economy and happy people, and just in the matter of, of, of three days in March decided to destroy everything. It's in the name of virus mitigation. It's just that this happened to us is is a, a shock of my lifetime. I can't believe it, and and we, we're going to have to come to terms with it psychologically, intellectually, and every other way. So make a prediction. So before before we close it down, what's uh, what do you think the next few months look like? And oh, I think you know most people have moved on from COVID already and uh, are fed up. So the governor is going to be under increasing pressure uh, to restore normalcy and. Um, I think it's going to be about six months, but eventually people, once they decompress from this experience, like right now, people are really over it in the sense that they, they don't want to even think about it happening. It's like what you said about Texas, things are, are seeming normal and, and you just want you just want your life back, you know. But in six months from now, people are going to, the PTSD will start to go go away a little bit and we're going to have, I think there's going to be a mass movement in this country against lockdowns and, and a, 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 we're going to extract promises from every one of our elected leaders never to do anything like this again. I think in a weird way, 
And and here's the other thing: the lockdowners themselves. I mean, the CDC has been discredited. The the, the FDA, you know, all these people. And and by the way, one good thing coming out of this is the is the the movement against qualified immunity and police unions in this country. So that was that was really good. Um, that's that's a good thing. So I think in a in a way, even though we're not going to get our output back economically for a very long time, we might get. If if everything were emancipated today, we might get ninety percent of it back by December, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think it's going to probably we're going to be in in for a rough two or three years before things get back any even where, anywhere close to normal. But I think in the end, it's going to be good for the cause of uh, uh, freedom of commerce and um, capital investment, and we're going to we're going to figure out ways to restrain the state so that nothing like this ever happens again. But I'm I'm an optimist. That's but that's what I believe. I, 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 I yeah, I can only hope you're right because this is yeah. this is uh, um, there, our safeguards have to be strengthened here because this is yeah. not this is not okay. Yeah. Jeffrey, thank you so much. This is uh, wonderful, pleasure. and thanks for all your writing. There's been very. Uh, I'm going to share a lot of it with our students, and and uh, yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macombs. 